You ain't heard nothing yet. Get around, let me know. Bubbles there. What am I going to do? Frankly, my dear, I'm going to make him an offer. You talking to me? Stay out of the train! I don't know who you are. Why so sick? When I'm good, I'm very good. Simple. But when I'm bad, oh, yes. I'm better. He's the Call me Mr. Boy's best friend. You have no style. You Fasten your seatbelts. It's going to be a bumpy night. Hello, and welcome back to the Tinsel Factory. My name is Caitlin, and I'm your host. Hope everybody had a great week. I personally had a pretty cool one as I was fortunate enough to be present last Saturday when the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences had an evening with Sashin Littlefeather. If you don't know who that is, she's the indigenous woman whom turned down Marlon Brando's Oscar for him in 1973 when he won for The Godfather. Littlefeather was blacklisted from Hollywood for her actions, even though, you know, she's doing a favor for a much more famous friend. And apparently which I did not know due to uh, pressures from the FBI, and it probably didn't take much because it was Hollywood in the 1970s, the film industry turned its back on her. Little Feather was a member of SAG, which is the Screen Actors Guild. She was supposed to be a member of that community, but was shut out because of her standing up for her beliefs, you know. But now, nearly 50 years later, the Academy issued a formal apology. They did that last month. And then last Saturday night was sort of the official sort of pomp and circumstance of the whole thing. At 75, Sashin Littlefeather was gracious, witty, and just utterly inspiring. She also curated several performances of tribal songs, dances, and the like to show the robust culture that is so often parodied in film. The whole evening... It's not a fix for the atrocities that happened to her and how Native Americans have been treated in this country or on film or as mascots of sports teams. But, you know, it's it's a step and it's certainly a step in the right direction, which is a nice change. It didn't feel like grovelly, if that's a word, just like it, didn't, it just felt like it, it felt like more of a healing thing than a trying to be PC thing. Because I know I, I was reading a lot of comments about that. That's not what it was about. It was about recognizing past transgressions in the hopes for, you know, for healing and for a more, you know, inclusive, less a holish future. But yeah, I felt very fortunate that I got to experience it in person. The entire event is on the Academy's YouTube channel if you want to see it. I'll put a link in the show notes as well if I can remember. I'm recording this like super early this week, like late on Wednesday night, in fact, as I'm traveling this weekend and had my act together enough to record early so I don't have to pack all my equipment, which is a pain, but not so together that... I also had time to edit it in times, but that just requires a laptop, much less equipment. Also, if you're listening to this on release day, it is my birthday, so yay for aging. This week, we're covering a brief history of the horror film, just in time for Spooky Month, though I've been celebrating since September 1st. And we'll also go into how some of the OG monsters of cinema and how they shifted into modern film monsters and slashers. With that, let's take our places. It's showtime.
For as long as man has stood upright, we have gathered around the campfire to tell stories of ghosts, goblins, demons, and all manner of supernatural beings. Every culture has its own paranormal creatures, and eventually most, if not all, would be adapted to the silver screen to terrify audiences in a whole new way. Unlike drama and comedy, horror developed more from within literature than theater. It was from gothic fiction, which set itself apart from other horror or supernatural genres, by the presence of a theme of the current times being haunted by the past. The setting of these stories included physical reminders of said past, usually starting with the usage of a once grand mansion that is now falling into ruin. By the 18th and 19th centuries, this trope would grow to include castles, monasteries, cemeteries, and crypts. The goal of this was just to make the reader feel as claustrophobic and unsettled as possible. The depiction of horrible events in gothic fiction often served as a metaphorical expression of psychological or social conflicts. The format of a gothic story is usually discontinuous and convoluted, often incorporating tales within tales, stories within stories, shifting narrators, and using framing devices such as discovered manuscripts or mashed up histories or diary entries. It's more often that than like an out-and-out narrative. Other characteristics, regardless of relevance to the main plot, can include sleep-like and death-like states, live burials, doppelgangers, weird sounds or no sounds at all, unintelligible writings, and nocturnal landscapes and dreams. Gothic horror, by the by, had partially developed from the works of Shakespeare, see Hamlet, Macbeth, etc. By the end of the 19th century, books like Frankenstein by Mary Shelley and Dracula by Bram Stoker and many, many other works like them had been published. More gothic genre was published in that era than any other era preceding it. While they were not all out-and-out horror as we describe it today, the horror elements of these novels lingered in cinema, with their settings becoming staples in the horror genre. The final thing that horror needed before it was you know, its own genre, was the Phantasmagoria shows, which we've mentioned a little bit in the past. Those are magic lantern shows on steroids, and they often featured lights, fog, and all manner of spooky images to thrill and chill the audience. Horror as a film genre popped up arguably in 1896. There are some elements that were earlier, but this is the first cohesive one, with George Melies' The Devil's Castle, which featured images of demons, ghosts, and a spooky castle, all of which became staples of the horror genre. To Achieve this, Milliers had used his long tenure as a magician, as well as trick photography, editing, and other little sneaky bits to scare audiences in a way gothic horror never could. It's one thing to read something, quite another to actually see it with your own eye holes. Other early horror movies were adaptations of gothic horror novels and short stories, relying on the name recognition to get the audiences in the theater. If it wasn't from that, most... Horror movies from these early years dealt with ghosts, skeletons, and the devil when not adapted. Horror stories were so internationally enjoyed that several countries' film industries were making concurrent adaptations at the same time. Since early films were silent, this was a dad redundant, but in a world of a new art form and a lack of super fast international communication or, you know, any basically any kind of fast communication, this was bound to happen. In fact, three versions of Robert Louis Stevenson's Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde were made in 1920 alone, all three of them U.S. productions. And before 1920, there had already been nine film adaptations of the novel. There's six from the U.S., one Dutch, one German, and one from the U.K. And I think, if I'm not mistaken, every single one of those, all like 
12 I just mentioned, I think every single one is actually lost. The first major breakthroughs creatively in the genre happened in Germany, with Paul Wagner becoming one of the first major directors of the early horror genre, with films like The Golem from 1915 and its two sequels. The two major films to come out of Germany in the early 20s, of course, was first The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari from 1920, which was about a crazy hypnotist and the sleepwalking man he forces to carry out his bidding. Caligari is a staple not only of the early horror genre due to its paranormal elements, but also for being a prominent example of German expressionism, which would soon influence design elements of future horror films. Also, when the Third Reich became very Third Reich-y, a lot of the filmmakers from Germany fled to Hollywood and influenced the horror genre that was developing there. Expressionism had been a way that German artists could express their dismay with the fallout of World War I, and boy oh boy does it show. These films were also the beginning of psychological horror, which revolutionized the horror genre. The other major horror film to come out of Germany this time was Nosferatu from 1922, which was a relatively loose and also unauthorized adaptation of Dracula. Nosferatu in its own right would also serve as an early template for the horror film. For more on expressionism, check out my episode on German cinema from last month. Stateside, following the massive success of a Broadway and then touring production of a play adaptation of Dracula, Universal Pictures acquired the rights of the book and play to turn it into a film. When Dracula released in February 1931 to highly positive reviews and crazy commercial success, it, it surprised pretty much everybody. <laughs> No one more so than Carl Lemley and Universal Pictures. This, I mean, like Dracula always gets the credit for being the first Universal horror movie. It's not. The studio had been putting out horror films since 1923 with Hunchback of Notre Dame. Phantom was, I think, 1925. Like they'd been doing it for a while, but they'd never had the success at the Dracula level until now. So naturally, Universal doubled down and made Frankenstein, which released in November 1931, which was also very successful. And the two films made household names of its stars, Bela Lugosi and Boris Karloff, respectively. Karloff would also be the titular character in Universal's next horror film, 1932's The Mummy. These films, arguably, are the foundation of modern horror. The 30s also marked the first time that the word horror would be used to describe the genre. Before this, it was most awfully considered a dark romance melodrama, which not in a million years is how I would describe any of these, really. But that's how genre theory works. It develops with time. Naturally, seeing success, monkey see, monkey do, studios immediately copied Universal, making their own scary movies and flooding the market, and soon people would lose interest in the genre. And as quickly as the influx of horror films began, studios began heavily reducing the output by 1936. Actors like Lugosi and Karloff, who had become moderately wealthy from playing monsters, now found themselves typecast and therefore out of work. At the end of the decade, however, a profitable re-release of Dracula and Frankenstein would lead to Universal making 1939's Son of Frankenstein, which featured both Lugosi and Karloff and reinvigorated the horror genre. 
Horror movies entered the 40s on a high note, a level of popularity it maintained for another five years. Universal began setting the precedent of so many modern horror movies by putting out tons and tons of sequels for its horror properties and starting a new one in the form of The Wolfman from 1941. In 1942, RKO began churning out its series of B-horror movie films. Under the leadership of Val Luton, whom left David O. Selznick, who produced Gone with the Wind, for Christ's sake of all people, to go work for RKO to make horror movies with the intention of trying to show up Universal, which at the time was the world's leader in the genre. One of the conditions of his contract was that he would be allowed to make pretty much whatever he wanted, but he would have to do so as cheaply as possible, and RKO would choose the film title. Other than that, he could pretty much make whatever he wanted. Luton's goal or one of them anyway by doing this, was to make a classier horror film than what Universal was making. So naturally, the first film released from RKO with this business model was Cat People from 1942, which is about a woman whom turns into a panther whenever she's horny. Classy. Because of the basement-level budget, these films didn't have lavish sets and costumes, leading to the editing, lighting, and general atmosphere to build suspense, which is now, of course, another trope of the genre. Other films released by RKO around this time included I Walked with a Zombie from 1943 and The Body Snatcher from 1945. While these films are a major part of American film history as they set up the precedent for making horror movies cheaply, but marketing them with the same hubbub as a major A picture, the genre almost completely died out in 1947, at least in the United States. This was due to a sharp decline in sales following World War II. People wanted happier films. They were moving out to the suburbs. TV was a thing. So instead of creating new horror films, the major and minor studios just opted to re-release their old ones during this time instead, which is Infinitely cheaper. Elsewhere, in this case Hammer Films, which was a British independent studio, they began churning out low-budget horror films in the late 1950s after a brief foray into mimicking American-style sci-fi. By the end of the decade, however, the studio transitioned into horror with their color horror films like The Curse of Frankenstein and Dracula, both of which released in 1958. These films would birth two more horror film stars, Peter Cushing and Christopher Lee. Hammer would be a prominent producer of horror films for the next 10 years, but would cease production in the 1970s. Back in the U.S. in the 40s and 50s, horror reemerged with sci-fi twists due to the Cold War and having witnessed the horrors of atomic warfare and the fallout of such bullshit. This began with The Thing from Another World from 1951, which was about a group of explorers whom discovered an alien plant-based being, and that thing starts killing them off one by one when oopsie-doopsies, it defrosted. For several years following the release of that film, nearly every film involving aliens, dinosaurs, or just radioactive mutants in general would be dealt with a matter-of-fact stock characters that were reminiscent of the ones in Thing from Another World. Nothing worse than an overconfident person that turns out to be wrong. Even films featuring vampires, werewolves, and even Frankenstein's monster at this time would have more sci-fi elements implemented. American horror films would also lean more into campiness and gimmicks than anything else at this time. Horror films also expanded further into international productions and markets in the later half of the 1950s, with films in the genre being made in Mexico, Italy, Germany, and France. The villains of 60s horror would transform from ghosts and goblins and radioactive beings and aliens to something far more realistic, your fellow man. 
This pretty much kicked off with 1960's Psycho, directed by Alfred Hitchcock. Psycho was a massive success, leading to films like The Haunting from 1963 and Rosemary's Baby from 1968, the latter of which also led to the genre of freaky-ass kid movies, see The Omen from 1976. The 60s would also see an increase in on-screen violence, starting with the British film Black Sunday, which released in 1960. There had been violence shown on film before, of course there had, but Black Sunday was among the first to show violence for the sake of violence. This film and others would influence the Italian giallo film and filmmakers like Dario Argento. And lest we not forget what happened when the Italians started making horror films, I'm looking at you, Cannibal Holocaust. In America, this type of film led to a genre called the splatter film, which started with Night of the Living Dead from 1968, which today, more than anything else, is considered one of the first zombie movies, which of course is a massive subgenre of the genre. Zombies existed on film before this, though were raised by Mad Men or a witch doctor, see Frankenstein or Dr. Caligari or I Walked with a Zombie, then, you know, Night of the Living Dead's like mystery disease. Also prior to Night of the Living Dead, the monsters and horror films could be ultimately vanquished by the end of the movie, but George Romero's film and the films of other up-and-coming directors from this time would feature a sense of fear and horror that would still exist in the world of the film even after the credits began to roll. Romero's zombie films were equal parts social commentary as they were horror, holding up a mirror to the social zombies Romero saw around him at this time. The 1970s was arguably an international golden age of the horror film and a time of embracing the old ways as well as a more personal type of horror. As for the first time since likely the 1920s, like the early 1920s, it became possible for directors to make films outside of the studio system and actually have them be seen. This led to the emergence of filmmakers like Wes Craven, John Carpenter, and Brian De Palma. This golden age would also cause the horror genre to gain an explosion of subgenres in the process. Despite Hammer no longer producing films, there were tons of movies coming out released based on classic monsters. This included Werner Herzog's remake of Nosferatu, which released in 1979. Aliens, kind of a remake from 1979, as it took B-movie elements from films like It, The Terror Beyond Space, which came out in 1958. Also, films like Aliens and Jaws from 1975 and Halloween from 1978 became box office hits because of their rampant use of suspense, music, and advanced visuals and editing. And also, speaking of Jaws, that led to an emergence of the animal horror genre and several horrible sequels to go with it. Possession films came to prominence in the early 1970s with 1973's The Exorcist. While demonic possession was seen on film as early as 1922's Hoxen, which is a Swedish horror film, it would be over 50 years before they were really allowed to be made. Stories about audiences that saw The Exorcist were almost as popular as the film itself. Future films of the genre would be The Evil Dead, Jennifer's Body, and Paranormal Activity. Supernatural horror, because of The Exorcist, became the big horror genre of the moment. Other supernatural-themed films around this time included haunted houses and ghosts. Among the most popular was The Shining from 1980 and Poltergeist from 1982. Literature also once again became a major source for content, but this time that author would be none other than Stephen King. The Shining and Carrie from 1976 would lead to a very popular trend of adapting King's novels into films and TV shows and everything else, which is still a very common practice to this day. From out of the monster movies came the slashers. 
This is where we get Jason Voorhees, Michael Myers, Freddy Krueger, and all the lesser knockoffs. These characters were an advancement of the movie monsters that they evolved from because this lot targeted average people instead of wealthy virgins and scientists with god complexes. These three also gave rise to the slasher genre, which was easily the most popular horror subgenre of the 1980s. They were utterly reviled by just pretty much all film critics. There might have, there might have been one like little like, hey, I like them. Critics didn't like these, but they made a ton of money at the box office thanks to their low budgets and audiences flocking to go see them. Leatherface was the first to actually do this, though, in 1974's Texas Chainsaw Massacre before the door was completely kicked down by the others, namely Michael Myers. The 1980s also brought back the transformation sequences seen in films like The Wolfman, which are made possible by makeup artists like Rick Baker, whom among many others would revolutionize special effects makeup. Well, a little bit dated now. It still looked pretty good. I watched it about three weeks ago. An American Werewolf in London's transformation scene was revolutionary upon its release in 1981. This kind of transformation stuff and similar things like it is known as body horror. And this genre regained modern prominence due to David Cronenberg's debut film Shivers from 1979, which is a film about sexual disease effing you the H up. Throughout the 70s and 80s, thanks to how cheap it was to make a horror movie, scores of untested filmmakers tried their hand to break into Hollywood through schlocky, violent horror films that were often super cheesy and horrendously acted. There were exceptions. Friday the 13th definitely falls under here, which frankly was just a ripoff of Halloween. And after it made a ton of money, studios flooded the market with these films in the hopes to make a lot of money with very little effort. These schlocky horror films also led to the horror franchise, which of course is still very much a thing. Another major booster to the horror genre at this time was the birth of the home video market. And for horror, this led to the invention of the video nasty, which got its name for prioritizing gore and other horrible visuals in the name of entertaining teenagers from their living rooms. For the first time since really the early 1950s, horror films kind of stagnated again in the early 90s because of how formulaic they had become to the point that it was starting to feel like like a parody. Just look at any Nightmare on Elm Street film after the first one. The third one's good. The second one's the second one's trash. I will I will posit the second one is bad. But like if you watch those films, they progress from like very like Freddy is very, very scary in the first one. But by like the fifth or sixth one, he's just cracking jokes and it's more it's it's more gimmicky than it is scary. And, you know, if you want to go to a movie and be scared, you don't want to hear Freddy Krueger like, you know, laying down sick burns. You want to see him violently murder somebody. And that just wasn't happening. In fact, these subpar, often crappy sequels to what had been, let's be honest, by and large, just okay horror films from the 1980s led to its much needed hibernation. Towards the end of the decade, though, with fear of Y2K looming, remember that? Studios jumped on this fear with a bunch of end of the world films like Armageddon, though that was also based on like the uh, asteroid that was supposed to take us out. I think that's still on the table. I don't remember, but that's not what this is about. Anyway, the thing that would really kick things up a notch for the horror genre was a subgenre known as post-horror, which emerged toward the end of the decade and started with Scream from 1996. Scream was meta as all get out, and this self-awareness somehow breathed new life into the genre. Postmodern films did continue into the 2000s, but then eventually, as it always seems to be, fell into 
just being released as parody films, a la Scary Movie. The late 90s also saw a major international boom of Japanese horror with films like Ring U from 1998, which would eventually yield an American version in 2002, as well as a series of shitty sequels. The same was the case for Juan the Grudge from 2002, which led to an American remake and a shitty sequel, but first it was The Grudge from 2004. There was also The Sixth Sense from 1999, which was a ghost story with one of the most iconic lines in cinema, and that film kickstarted, for better or worse, M. Night Shyamalan's career. And it also introduced the, now basically cliched at this point, twist ending. There was also The Blair Witch Project from 1999, which was a found footage horror film made with over-the-counter film equipment. This method of storytelling had first been seen in horror all the way back in 1980 with the Italian giallo film Cannibal Holocaust, but became huge after The Blair Witch Project. I was nine when this movie came out, if I'm not mistaken. And yep, I was allowed to see it when I was like 10 at the oldest. And everybody told everybody. Remember, this is like pre pre like social media. And everybody told everybody that it was real. So it scared the ever loving shit out of me. I am from a rural area. There is a lot of woods. I not a fan. Every I remember the year after that, like after watching that, I went mushroom hunting with my father and I went, oh, this is where they shot this movie. I'm going to die. Of course, I didn't say anything, which is probably why I'm a very anxious adult. Anyway, that fear fueled Blair Witch's success and led to the found footage horror film subgenre, which has had dozens of even cheaper imitations, but hit peak genre quality with 2007's Paranormal Activity, which is the most successful dollar for dollar film ever made. The beginning of teen skewed horror films kicked off in the early 2000s, very likely growing out of the slasher films in the 1980s, as those mostly dealt with teenagers. Final Destination was one of the first major ones to do this. Honestly, though, despite the sheer amount of content, early 2000s horror was reliant on reboots and remakes and was discouragingly formulaic as a result. Zombies did come back into popularity for really the first time since the late 1970s, early 80s, thanks to the remake of Dawn of the Dead and the comedy zombie film Shaun of the Dead, both of which came out in 2004. If you want to know why we had a seemingly endless stream of zombie shows and films for a while there, it was because of how well these films did at the box office. Beyond remakes, other long-dormant horror franchises such as The Exorcist and Friday the 13th got sequels, Were They Good?, Absolutely not. Jason X took place in goddamn space, and I can't remember the Exorcist one, just that it was very bad. British horror also saw a small bump in prevalence thanks to aforementioned Shaun of the Dead and 28 Days Later from 2002, the latter of which popularized the fast zombie, though technically in that film they weren't undead, they were infected with a rage virus, but you know, semantics, nobody remembers that. Arguably the worst subgenre, horror subgenre to come from the 2000s is often referred to as torture porn, a term coined by critic David Edelstein in 2006, and we pretty much have 2004 Saw and the army of sequels that follow to thank for that. Torture porn is basically the modern version of the splatter film. While Saw started out strong with a nuanced, truly terrifying first film, with each sequel, the terror came more and more from the gratuitous murder-torture scenes and not about what the plot was. You don't need to know anybody to... Like, I remember I skipped, like... I think I said the first three and then skipped like the sixth one. And I didn't know who anybody was, but the enjoyment was the same. I've since gone back and watched them all. It doesn't change anything. You can go there for the crazy murder scenes. Let's be honest. Anyway, (laughs) 
The 2010 horror breakout wasn't a filmmaker, more of a producer, and this was in the form of Jason Blum, whose production company Blumhouse began churning out cheap but well-produced horror films that were bangers at the box office. This started with 2007's Paranormal Activity, but went on to include franchises like Insidious from 2010, The Purge films, and culminating in today with them making the new Halloween films and co-producing 2017 Best Picture nominee Get Out, which was directed by Jordan Peele. Several studios have copied the Blum model, notably A24, who is responsible for films like Midsommar from 2019 and Hereditary, which I believe came out in 2016 or 2017. Sometimes films like this are called elevated horror, which is a term used for films that were beyond traditional or pure genre films, but are declared such as they aren't necessarily a new, they're not a new subgenre. They're just basically bougie horror movies. They're horror movies that went to a liberal arts college. Actually, that's a great way to describe A24. It's a it's a regular studio that went to a liberal arts college. Horror is in a pretty interesting place right now. Yes, you've still got your reboots and your sequels and nostalgia is really hot right now. So it's 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 a thing. And we're always going to have those. It's part of the genre. But we've also got like ultra smart horror films coming out, like some of the ones I just mentioned, as well as Cabin in the Woods from 2012, Babadook, even though it wasn't a big Babadook person, I do recognize that it was a quality film from 2014. And, you know, most recently with films like Jordan Peele's Get Out from 2017, which was the first horror film since Silence of the Lambs, which I think was back in 1991, to be nominated for Best Picture at the Oscars. This genre is very much in an era of revitalization, proving to the masses that you can wound it. But horror will never die. And that's going to do it for this week. If there's anything you'd like me to cover in the future, please reach out on social media where I also post photos for each episode at Tinsel Factory Pod on Instagram, on Facebook at The Tinsel Factory, or you can always email me at tinselfactorypod at gmail.com. I'm relying on word of mouth to get this podcast out there, so if you could please rate, review, and subscribe so that other people can find this podcast, that would be a huge help. In order to keep making the podcast, I've also set up a support page, the link of which you can find in the show notes. If you'd like to help out in any way, I would very much appreciate it. I've also got Buy Me a Coffee, where you buy me a coffee when I'm not doing this at 11 o'clock at night. I've also got merch. Check it out at the link in the show notes. I am off next week. October is a five Sunday month, and I don't know if I ever specified, but I only do four episodes a month. Most, well, 10 months out of the year anyway. But I will be back on the 9th of October with a month on horror movies and the true events that inspired them. Oh, and next week will be my 100th episode. So that is very exciting for me. Thanks again for listening. And until next time, that's a wrap.